fans and welcome to the drive time podcast part of the miami dolphins official podcast network covering your team your miami dolphins each and every day how's it going everybody it is friday i am your host travis wingfield and i'm here to bring you your daily dose of miami dolphins football and on today's show we are going to welcome in channing crowder one of the all-time great drive time and fish tank podcast guest, one of the all-time great post-playing career media personalities there is in existence. Channing Crowder jumps in to talk about the 2005 season opening win over the Denver Broncos. We'll also get Seth and OJ on the podcast a little bit later to talk about what's next on the fish tank. We'll get you the latest injury report for Dolphins and Broncos and cover John Kinjemi's three keys to the game. All of that and more on this Friday, November the 20th edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. Drive Time is brought to you by AutoNation. Listen up, Dolphins fans. The new year starts now at AutoNation.com. Let's skip the rest of 2020 and get to big New Year savings on your favorite AutoNation Chevys, Fords, Toyotas, Hondas, and more. Shop safely at the AutoNation store near you or AutoNation.com and save now. Let's go ahead and jump into John Kinjemi's three keys to victory on this Sunday against the Denver Broncos. We'll go through this thing real quick. First, he talks about continuing creating scoring opportunities. We talked about it on the podcast earlier. Context for short fields, getting hidden yardage, putting points on the board early, scoring fast, and putting the pressure on. Speaking of pressure, point number two, pressure the pocket. That's been a key to this team and this defense every single week, getting sacks, putting pressure on the quarterback, creating takeaways, guys like Emmanuel Ogba, Shaq Lawson, Andrew Van Ginkle, Zach Sealer, and the entire crew. Number three, win third down. John writes the Dolphins are third in third down defense this season, but Denver's right behind them with the sixth best third down defense. Whichever team can win third down typically has a better chance to win the game. So the turnovers, pressure on the quarterback, winning third down, some of your keys to victory. Let's go ahead and get the Dolphins and Broncos injury report here for this week 11 matchup in Denver. And first with the Miami Dolphins, just two players questionable on the injury report. Kyle Van Noy, the linebacker and offensive guard Solomon Kinley are going to be questionable for the game on Sunday. Everybody else with no injury status. For the Denver Broncos, a whole heap of players on the questionable designation for this game. And that includes quarterback Drew Locke. James Palmer of NFL Network said that he's going to be questionable with that rib injury, that he wants to play. Saturday morning will play a factor if he can go. They want to see if he throws and feels it after throwing. Other players questionable for the Broncos? Graham Glasgow and Deshaun Williams were not on the injury report previously, but have been added as questionable status for Sunday. And the same is true for cornerback Bryce Callahan. So some pretty big names on that list for the Broncos. To check out the rest of the injury report, go ahead and check out top news on MiamiDolphins.com. We'll have that available for you guys on the website. And riding shotgun now on the Drive Time podcast is former Dolphins linebacker, currently the host of the Hawkman and Crowder show. You can hear him on Dolphins pregame show on WQAM. Channing Crowder. Channing, welcome in, man. Man, appreciate you having me, Travis, man. You know, call me more, bro. You know, not only. <laughs> it's, it's been a minute, man. We last did the podcast back in March, and that was, I think it was like right before COVID became a part of our lives, and I haven't really spoke to you since, man. So, like, catch me up. What's going on with you? Oh, same stuff. Doing everything from home, man. You know, virtual school, show from home, 
everything from home. But, uh, you know, it, it brings you closer to your family if you're a family. I know you're a family man, so you get more time with the fam. And they're just getting through it, bro. It's the new norm now, as they call it. That's exactly right. Like you said, there are always finding the silver linings, right? Spending more time with the family is definitely one upshot of, of all this, I suppose. But another upshot right now is the Dolphins playing some damn good football, and you're very well inundated with the current sports landscape, especially down here in Miami, where business is kind of booming, man. Marlins wipe out a playoff drought. The Heat come within two games of an NBA championship. The Hurricanes are a top-10 team, not to mention your Florida Gators chaining, and the Dolphins are riding a five-game winning streak. If you can find it within yourself to pass up the talking point there about the Gators, what are you seeing from this Dolphins team right now, Channing? And it's it's amazing. They're they're a real team. You just see it, you know, these last couple of games, especially when two has gone in, like the special teams make plays. The defense goes out and make makes plays. And they're not putting it all on two in the offense. It's a it's a complete team. They're out there, you know, they're uh, one of the top scoring defenses in the league. And now with Tua, you know, they're rolling, putting 30 on the board, you know, multiple times. So man, I'm 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 excited. I've I've done some some shows and some interviews now nationally where people are interested in the dolphins in LA, you know, in, in DC, just around in New York, you know, around the nation. So it's where they should be. And man, it looks like Brian Flores was the guy he's bringing in those, those, those young guys, those young offensive linemen are playing well, young defenders are playing well. Those lockdown corners are doing their thing on the outside. Xavier Howard playing out of his mind right now. Travis, this, I, I think we saw around man i think we're heading in the right direction uh, it's hard to argue with the results right now plenty of plenty of games left to go for sure seven more to close this thing out and yeah i mean your excitement i mean i can only reciprocate that so much channing it's it's fun to turn on national tv shows and you know i never put too much into you know what the talking heads say but it is fun to see that dolphins logo up on that screen for 10 15 minutes at a time as they do multiple segments on this dolphins team and that's that's kind of one of the talks of the league right now but i want to go back to your first career game. We we're going to talk about the 2005 game at home against the Denver Broncos on this Friday flashback podcast. Dolphins linebacker Channing Crowder here. First game of your career with the Dolphins are in Denver this Sunday at 4.05. But going back to that game in 2005, let's go ahead and start first by when you were drafted by the Dolphins because that kind of gets us into this, you know, the season opener for you, your first career game. What was it like for you to know that I'm staying down in Florida after being with the Gators for, for your entire college career, staying down in Miami, being drafted by Nick Saban? What were your thoughts when you first got picked by the Dolphins? Well, the, on draft day, I was kind of upset, not because I was going to Miami, just because I went third round yeah. and I was the first round grade and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I was ready to get drafted about 12:31, and I didn't go until 8.30 at night. That's back when it was first three yeah. rounds on the first day. So seven hours too late, a lot of beers and whiskey in. So uh, <laughs> when Nick Saban called me, I wasn't all of sound mind and body, if you know what I'm saying. But then coming down, man, and my draft class too, Travis, with Ronnie Brown and, and Matt Roth and it's crazy. John Denny, who just hung it up, you know, he, he was there with me. We had an awesome draft class and coming in with Saban, you know, Saban was just, you know, everybody knows the, straight edge, you know, kind of, you know, anal type thing. He, he approached, you know, the way he approached the game. So I was excited to play in Miami. I was excited to get drafted. And then when I got here, man, to how Junior Seau and Zach Thomas took me under their wings and just really just talked to me about really how to play the game, the mental side from Zach, the side from Junior, where Junior would always tell me, don't get overcoached now. You're here because of your ability. Go go show off why you're here. So to have that yin and yang in my in my room, two Hall of Famers in my linebacking room, man, I really, I really think it was the perfect situation. Two two rounds too late, but it was the perfect <laughs> situation. 
great guys. That's why I stayed in Miami. Great people down here. Still keep in touch with pretty much every name I just said. So it was a blessing. It was a blessing that I got arrested a bunch of times and they had character <laughs> issues. So, you know, silver lining, like you said about COVID. I find a silver lining in going third round. That's exactly right. I think the last time I saw you in person was the Jets game last year. And we I asked you about the story when you got ejected from the game in 2008 against the Patriots. And you kind of went into that and told me the silver lines behind that story as well. We won't go on the air with that story, Channing, <laughs> but... <laughs> But I am curious about you talk about that veteran leadership in that room because I think it kind of is a good a good prelude back to the Dolphins' current team right now with this good mix of yeah it's a very young team but you do have guys like a, you know Ryan Fitzpatrick in there for instance the quarterback for the first six games or seven games or so you've got uh, Kyle Van Noy on the defense kind of brings guys together fulfills that role and has that that veteran leadership role. Landon Roberts serves as kind of a conduit for Brian Flores' message to the players on the field. That 2005 team, you mentioned Jason Taylor, Junior Seau, yourself a rookie on that team. You still got Sam Madison out there. What was that blend? Like, how important is that blend for having those veteran guys that can kind of show the young guys the rope, but also still having that young, kind of young, hungry blood coming in? It, it, it's perfect, and I think that's the, um, that's the design, especially defensively, speaking from my perspective, is that you have those old guys, and if you think about it, babies, babies are emotional. You have a young one. Anything happens, they start crying. It doesn't change until you, you know, say like 21 to 35. You're still, you're still emotional at 20, more than a guy like a Zach Thomas or Junior Seau. So just knowing that the game's just a long game. You give up a touchdown, next play, bro. Let's move on. Let's move forward. And I made my, you know, my fair share of mistakes where as soon as I, if I missed a tackle or something like that, you know, as a young guy, your first opportunity in front of, you know, NFL crowd, NFL eyes, and you mess up where you, you know, kind of get down and you start, you know, get upset. Whereas Zach would always come up to me, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, and be like, next play, CC, next play, next quarter. You know, let's get out. You know, it, it's just let's go. Let's do our job. So the young excitement, the jumping around, the yelling, the hooting, the hollering, shooting in, you know, trying to kill fullbacks and trying to knock people's helmets off, that's what the young guys bring. The old guys bring the savvy and the intelligence and the X and O side of it. I talked a lot, of, a lot about it with Zach, where for about two years, Zach would tell me where the ball was going. He would flat out, the, the play would be going, my way, my way, my way. Coming at you, CC, coming at you. Where I wouldn't see what Zach saw. I could make the play. I could shoot any gap. I could hit any guard. But I didn't see it. It didn't slow down for me like it slowed down for Zach. So that young energy combined with that veteran savvy, the X and O side of the veterans, but also the calming effect of, hey, long game, next play, next quarter, next series. Let's go out here and get a three and out. That's all we need to do is get three and outs together. And that's where I think the combination of an old veteran calm and the young energy really comes together. And to bring it back to this year is exactly what they have. You know, like the Wilkins and the, and the Davises and Godchild, they're jumping around, dancing, and, you know, beating <laughs> each other up. But you have Benoit kind of, hey, guys, take it easy. Even Jerome Baker. Jerome Baker has an old soul. Yeah. So Jerome kind of settles people down, too. So you can, you can see that dynamic on this current defense. That is balling right now. So I think that combination of, you know, you, you, can't, you can't have an AARP team out there, but you also don't want to have, a, 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 you know, a middle school you got to have that combination, and I think that's where good defense – that's how good defense support. Yeah, it seemed like that was a point of emphasis and free agency to go after guys that still had plenty of good ball ahead of them, right? Like like Kyle Van Noy and Emmanuel Ogba and Shaq Lawson, these guys in their mid to late 20s who still have plenty of good football in front of them, but they've also seen a lot of football previously. And you mentioned Zach Thomas and that veteran leadership. There was a great clip a couple weeks ago after the Rams game, I believe it was, where Ted Karras goes over to Tua on the sideline and 
And Tua's maybe not thrilled about his individual performance, but he's like, hey, Rook, come on, man, it's a dub. All that matters is the dub right now. And, and Tua kind of got picked up. It lifted his spirits. You could, you could tell in that moment. And so you talked about Zach Thomas doing the same for you. And I want to spin this thing and, and jump a couple questions ahead here for you. In this game, in this Broncos game, it really got started at the end of the first half. The Dolphins kind of went, took off after a four-play goal line stand against the Broncos. And Zach had back-to-back plays where he shot in there and made plays in the backfield. Like, was that when you guys saw him do that and kind of call those plays out and shoot those gaps and get those big plays that has to energize the entire team, right? Oh my goodness gracious. And he would, he, you knew he was going to do it. He knew those plays like before they broke Travis, when they were in the huddle, Zach knew what gap it was going in, which, which, which guard tackle that they like to run behind on short yardage, where they're going to motion the wing from Zach knew it already. So like I was saying, slowing everything down, how he slowed it down. But then when that ball snapped, like you said, it was not. It, he wasn't playing slow. He was thinking slow, but playing fast. It was amazing and to have have a veteran like that. And you know, he was he, he was older in his career. Exactly. I think his last Pro Bowl was those six. So it was it was right around. You know, he was in his prime, <laughs> but it was sneaking towards the end. And bro, to have that old old guy just sit there and flat out call the play, coming my way, coming my way, and then you see him disappear. And he, you know, he ain't he's a little thimble now. He ain't but by five ten, so he would literally disappear into the line. You wouldn't see him. And he shoot out the other side and make a tackle. It was so amazing to watch, and especially on goal line, because that's when them, you know, big you you make a TFL on the 50, first and 10, TFL, second and 11. Okay, good play. You make back-to-back stops on the goal line to take points off the board. That's why Zach was going to Pro Bowls. And I I didn't go to many Pro Bowls. I didn't go to any Pro Bowls, let's be honest. Let's not lie to anybody. <laughs> but it 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 was it did energize you to, to see. All of his studying and all of his hard work pay off year after year. And I said it before. I've told you before we talked, you know, a couple months ago. I would not have had this career I had. I would not have played as long as I had, made as many plays, started as many games if it wasn't for Zach Thomas really, really baby feeding me football. And I was an All-American in high school, All-American in college. And I got to the NFL and Zach Thomas had to baby feed me what football really is. From the, from the playmaking standpoint. So to have a vet making plays, taking points off the board, you saw what happened the rest of the game. We just, it, it just, it, like you said, that, that series really just, you know, um, you know, shot us up and then the offense. So the both sides of the ball where Tua comes in now and you see the defense playing better, energy from both sides of the ball, you can feed off of that. So then the offense goes, I think they scored 21 points in the fourth quarter. Like they just took off in the fourth. And I think the defense, they kind of fed off Fed off, fed off us holding down. Who was it? Jake Plummer and uh, they were twelve and fourteen. Now I know Denver now isn't what they were. If you think about 05, they were they were a good team. The defense holding those guys down and just we kept pounding them, stopping them on fourth down. The offense started getting some momentum, and that's complimentary football. And I know it's a cliche, but it, it, it's true. It cliches are cliches because they're usually true, right? So, I mean, it, it definitely adds up. And you make a good point there about Denver being a 12-4 and team that year. You guys would later go on to beat the Panthers two weeks later, who also played in their conference championship game. So, to start the season, you're 2-1 and one with victories against the two, two of the final four teams that year. And I'm cur- I've always been wondering how this works because, like, you come into the league, you play at a college, and usually guys that get drafted highly typically play at blue blood programs where you are used to winning football games. And you come into the Dolphins, and you mentioned falling to the third round, and 
you know, if you're a first round pick in the top 10, usually it means you're going to a pretty bad football team for the most part. And this Dolphins team was four and 12 the year prior. Ricky Williams had retired. They, you know, they bring in Nick Saban. I'm curious what your expectations were coming into your first season with a new team that was off a four and 12 season. And did it really change after that first game? I mean, 34, 10 over a team that had high expectations. Did that change things for you guys? Um, it really did. And well, Saban, Saban would brainwash you. And he was such so nastily good at his job, just nasty, talk to you nasty and all. Everybody's heard the stories, but he was good at his job. So he would prepare you, you know, to get ready for a game. But talking about like the narrative amongst the team or a narrative that, that I picked up was, if you remember back then, after Marino, it was always good defense, bad offense. Good defense, you know, Ricky, the run Ricky run thing was a thing because of the fact that this is the only offense we've really seen effective for years now. So it come in, and like I said, man, uh, Vonnie Holiday, Keith Trailer, Kevin Carter, Sam Madison, Pat Sertan just got traded to the Chiefs, I believe. Junior, Zach, Jason, like to Bucky Jones. He was a monster at safety at the time. Like you walked in, and the narrative, you know, spoken and unspoken was, bro, we got a good defense. If the offense can, if the offense can put points on the board, we're, we're going to win some games. And we we took pride in that. That and so so it's kind of you don't want to say it was two two different teams. You know, it was a defense first the offense kind of thing. But it was where defensively we would we knew that we were very good. We could play. The scheme was good. Nick Saban knew what he was doing. So let's give this offense as many chances as we can give them to score points because we are the stronger side of the ball. We would whoop their ass during every period of practice, Travis. I, we would t- we, they would start subbing people out because they couldn't get a playoff with them pro bowlers all up front. Junior and Zach coming, Junior and Jason coming off there, just the offense couldn't do anything. So they would start putting the twos in so that they can get a little confidence in their offense. So we knew we were the better side of the ball and didn't didn't you know it was no animosity. It was pride in it where if they're going to score, if they can't score over 17 guys, we got to hold the other team to 16. And that was kind of the approach of our defense, which was a very good defense that season. Well, yeah, and you guys probably prepared them well for that opening day game because, like you mentioned, 34 points against a Denver defense that had Al Wilson, had Champ Bailey back there as well, and had guys that could make plays on the football. And you mentioned the offense kind of going off in the second half. We were going to have Marty Booker on this podcast back when the game was in week six or whatever it was. We had to reschedule because, of again, COVID changes things. And I had a question for him. He had a 60-yard touchdown reception where he got on top of a cornerback. And now, Jenny, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but Book wasn't the fastest guy on the planet. But on that play, he looked like it. Was that just that Miami September heat gas in that Denver defense? Man, yes. I remember very vividly. The uh, the um, the Miami Herald cover, and it said the 12th man. And on their sideline, it was 120 degrees. <laughs> and I remember in that second half, Champ Bailey, between snaps, Champ Bailey, as soon as the ref blew the whistle, he would take his helmet off and take a knee. He didn't even get in the huddle. He was just trying to get as much of this thick South Florida air in his lungs as he could. I was a good friend with Gerard Warren. He went to Florida. We were, you know, he'd come back in Florida, and he was their defensive tackle. I remember Gerard Warren looking at me, you know, walking out, walking out of halftime and just shaking his head with the red eyes because they're not used to that much sweat pouring in their eyes, coming from beautiful Denver, you know, mile high, enjoying their camp, and then you come down here <laughs> to 120 degrees. So, yes, I think I think that the 12th man. Why you schedule games at 1 o'clock when you're a Miami Dolphin, you know, administrator, coach, you want, you want some early season 1 o'clock games because I was in Gainesville. Games was what three hours north. It's, it gets hot as hell in Gainesville. It doesn't get hot and humid like it does down here. 
it's just something else. And then there's no wind. There, that, that heat, the stink, if you breathe out and your breath stinks, it just stays in your face mask. There's no wind blowing, Travis. There's nothing moving. And it just, you saw them slowly breaking down, breaking down. So Marty's, let's be honest, you're right. Book, book ain't fast. Book wasn't fast. He's not fast now. He's, his kids probably aren't fast. Book ran about a four six four seven. Those DBs ran four fours yeah. in the fourth quarter. Book's four seven looked like a four four. <laughs> yeah. That that sun made those DBs four fours look like four seven. You could see, and it wasn't just that game, Travis. I've seen it. I saw the number of times where you just saw guys' bodies slowly breaking down in that in that triple digit hundred plus degree weather playing early in South Florida. Yeah, you mentioned the twelfth man, the, the Miami Herald cover. We uh, we had. Bart Scott on the Fish Tank podcast recently, which, by the way, they're, they're talking about getting you back on. Is that going to happen? Uh, they call me, man, like you, man. Y'all, y'all ask me all the time. Y'all got my number, baby. Hit me up. We need part three because that still is the best episode of all time. Brandon Marshall was really good. Bart Scott was really good. Channing Crowder still number one in your in your program and in your hearts there on the, on the Fish Tank podcast. But they had Bart Scott on who talked about a different 12th man. Let's go ahead and just call it South Florida lifestyle if you if you catch my drift. Yes. He said that was a big part of it. But another unique part about playing in Miami back in September in those days was the infield dirt. You had to have hated that, right? Oh, my goodness. It was terrible. You see, you see guys tripping. You would see guys, you know, just the, the falling down on it. You scrape yourself up. But I was, you know, those pretty dudes, those cute guys, you know, like a Chambers and a Ronnie Brown, they're worried about little scrapes. I didn't give a damn about scrapes. It was more the transition from running on grass to dirt. So yeah. you turn to go cover receiver and you're digging in the ground and you're, you're you know, you're digging and then you get to that clay and you can't dig anymore. So it's almost like you have to change your gait when you transition from the grass to dirt. And this mid-play, this isn't, you know, between plays. And that's what I hated the most about it because I remember a number of times where you would see guys not fall down but just trip up or slow down or have to gather themselves on that dirt. And in the NFL, those inches to gather yourself could be a touchdown or not a touchdown. So that was my biggest thing. I know a lot of guys hate to get tackled on it because you get them, them big strawberries. I remember, you know, me and Ronnie are real close and we hang out pretty much every day. I remember Ronnie just having – I'm talking about nine, 10 inch long, uh-huh. just scrapes down his forearms, down his biceps from getting tackled on that dirt. And I know the, I know offensive players hated it because of that, but everybody out there, they would talk about the footings. They, they ended up getting the Marlins, their own little stadium. And then we, we had real grass, but it was, it was, it wasn't fun playing on that dirt. The Raiders had it too. Yeah. So I just remember two, two teams. We were, we had it and the Raiders had it. And I just remember hating to go on, what would that be? The West side of Dolphin Stadium over there and playing on that side of the field because you knew sooner or later you would have to transition and you were going to stumble and that could be and on TV Travis and 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 you you're watching the game you're not saying oh no give Crowder a break because he he stumbled on the dirt you're saying damn Crowder why did you make that tackle or make that <laughs> play so it wasn't an excuse it was just a problem yeah exactly it's no excuses for the fans they don't want to hear that stuff but you know I I. As kids, we all went out and played in the street and played football on the street, and you know you might fall and get a scrape. But I can't imagine playing an NFL football game with grown ass men on basically what amounts to the pavement in front of your house. So it's just that's another a whole other subset of Dolphins football in those days, man. It was one last play in that game I want to bring up to you was the strip sack and fumble by JT where he scooped it and scored it, did the jump man the whole thing. Like I remember that play for two reasons: one, the jump man, which you know obviously has Michael Jordan infatuation, and that kind of bled over into his celebrations, and he had the shoes and everything. But also, like, did he regret that afterwards? Because the game was over; it was twenty-seven ten. He picks up a fumble. Was he like, man, the touchdown's nice, but I could have saved my breath on that one? <laughs> no, 
because I believe he has the most touchdowns yeah. for a defensive lineman in NFL history. So that might have been the one to put him yeah. over the edge. I'm, <laughs> I know he had one in the Vikings. I know, you know, throughout his career. But playing with Jake, I'm telling you, playing with JT was crazy. Because you knew sooner or later he was not going to make a play. He was going to make a gigantic play. And even at the end of that game where it's, oh, okay, we're winning. Yeah, let's, you know, they're trying to come back. JT's going to JT. Like, that's what he does. He was a big player. That's why he's the first Battle Hall of Famer. That's why he's he is what he is. So I know he doesn't regret it because the record books show it and, and he, his numbers are amazing. But that's just the thing where you're winning, keep playing ball. And that's go back to kind of what the vets used to tell you. Bro, I don't give a damn what happened the first 100 plays. This is the 101st play. Play this play like it's the last one and the next one and the next one. And that's what JT was doing. Denver should have blocked him if they didn't want him to sack right. for a fumble from recovery touchdown. And that's the whole that's the whole thought of football. Next play up, that tackle was probably a little tired from that 120 degrees, <laughs> and there's no chance. He couldn't block JT if he was healthy, if he was rested. Now he's tired, fourth quarter, stinking, that, that heat's on him. There's no way in the hell he's going to block JT now. And JT, uh, players like JT, Junior Zach, they, were, they, they could smell uh, blood in the water. They were like sharks. When you started getting tired, when you when you couldn't, when when you were getting exhausted, that's when I'm going to play my best because now I know I can beat you. And that's what JT did a number of times that year. And the following year, that was the defensive player of the year, uh, year 06. But JT made plays like that week in and week out, practices, ruining practices because the offense couldn't get the ball off. That was what you are when you're a Hall of Famer. That, that's, that's the type of plays you make. You play 60 minutes every game, right? That's what the great ones do. They finish the game start to finish. And and speaking of finishing, you guys finished out that season you know, with six consecutive wins. And I mentioned off the top, the Dolphins have a chance to get their sixth straight win on Sunday in Denver. The last three six-game winning streaks are 2016, 2008, the Wildcat year, and 2005, your rookie season. For the following season, I think Sports Illustrated had Miami as their Super Bowl pick that season. Leaving that season, the exit meetings, the um, you know, the, the the after the 16th game, I remember coming in for the exit team meeting, and that was the talk. Hey, fellas, we're rolling now. Like, we're a team. They don't want to. We were even saying like they wouldn't want. Nobody would want to play us in the playoffs if we if we you know won an extra game here and there. We're ten and six. Like nobody would want to play us right now. We're 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 bowling out. I remember the front cover via um, Sports Illustrated, the Dolphins, Super Bowl contenders, and all that stuff. So. The energy was the energy was crazy all offseason. Offseason workouts were, you know, I think, and Saban was big into it. They had a lot of incentives for workouts, but a lot of guys, I would say 90% of the guys had 100% um, uh, attendance at those offseason workouts. Like, this is the year. We're going to do something. And Dante Culpepper looked good, but didn't play good. Knee wasn't good, and we know that the rest is history. But you talk about preseason that year through camp, we, we have a chance to get a ring, and that's how we prepared and then we had to go play other people, Travis. And then it didn't work out the way it was supposed to. But the energy was there. The excitement was there throughout the entire preseason of that 06 season, which you would be. Well, you know, as a fan, it's almost it's almost just as good to have the offseason like hype and build up because that sticks with you for eight months and you have that excitement. Like I remember that was my senior year of high school, 2005. And I graduated in 06. So that that whole year, I was just telling everybody that I could, watch out for these dolphins, man. Watch out for these dolphins. And it, it didn't work out. It didn't work out for a lot of years. <laughs> me when I said that every single year. But hopefully things are kind of turning around now. Before I let you out of here, Channing, I want to ask you about your your recent project. And you do it with Brandon Marshall and Chad uh, Johnson slash Ocho Cinco as well. I am athlete, man. What a hell of a show that is. Can you tell us about that a little bit? It's cool, man. Brandon had his idea, and he just knows so many people. You know, Brandon has the house of athlete. He trains, you know, 
kids to, you know, families to NFL guys, you know, pre-draft stuff. But it's called House of Athlete, and they're opening another two locations. There's one out in Weston now. And um, he said, yeah, I want to do a show. He's like, there's all these podcasts out there, you know, the, um, the all, all the smoke stuff with, with the Steven Jackson and, and Matt Barnes. And, like, we, we enjoy watching that. And Brandon, man, Brandon's kind of like, he's crazy smart. Like, you remember he was crazy kicking balls and fighting people yeah. and slapping folks. But there's, like, a switch he turns on where he can come. He's, like, super intelligent. And he was like, hey, man, we have all, I know all these personalities. You know, let's come together. Let's, you know, get something. I'll get the film crew, and we'll see what happens. And now we're on the second season. I think we're on episode 12. We're going to shoot next week. And, it, man, it's gaining legs. We have 100,000 100, subscribers on YouTube. And it was really Brandon saying, hey, we sit around in the gym and talk trash all the time. We sit in this gym and talk trash. And after it closes, you know, we – drink wine, bring in some whiskey, hang out. He was like, hey, let's just let's just shoot this. Let's just catch this on camera and see what happens. And now the production's getting better. The, the the topics are getting good. We're getting some guests. Terrell Owens came on with us last week. He's coming on actually with us again next week. So it was just a Brandon Marshall idea that kind of that kind of hit and, and, and started started getting some legs. Well, yeah, the key to any great show, in my opinion, is, is it something different that no one else is doing, and you guys, to me, are doing that. So I really enjoy it, Channing. Really enjoy you on Hawkman and Crowder, of course, the Dolphins pregame show. He finished his career with 470 tackles, Channing, three forced fumbles, a pick, 20 tackles for loss. Channing Crowder, always a pleasure, my friend. And thank you so much. And y'all stop holding out on me, man. Y'all know I'm down here. All I do is put kids in virtual school and go fishing. So I got you any time, Trap. Hey, hey, Drive you, time, bro. Drive you know time I'm going to... You know I'm going to hit you up. It took me a few texts to get you on now, so I, I, I expect a little bit of both ways here, man. I got you, brother. You stay <laughs> on me, man. Stay on me. I, I, will, I, think I, get a, I think those 470 tackles might have rattled me a little bit, but I'm rolling. <laughs> there we go. I'll tell, I'll tell OJ about that. OJ's going to jump on after you here and talk about this game a little bit, too. He, he has the same exact thing. He calls it football brain, so perfect. Perfect way to end the podcast. Shannon Crowder, thanks again, man. Thank you, brother. Have a good one. So there he goes, Dolphins linebacker Channing Crowder. Always a fun interview. And speaking of fun interviews, time for my favorite part of the week. Let's go ahead and welcome in Seth and OJ from the Fish Tank Podcast. And as always on Friday, I'm thrilled to be joined by the guys from the Fish Tank Podcast. I've got Seth Levitt, OJ McDuffie. What's going on, fellas? Good to be here, man. I, you know, Juice's crossover game is a little better than mine, but still, I'm I'm excited to be here and drive time. I've always had better handles, Seth. You know, <laughs> always had better handles than you, man. You know what I mean? Better handles, better jump shot, <laughs> better defender, just better. Well, there's a reason Seth's not out there on the on the floor for those uh, those competitive games back in the '90s and, and early 2000s, right? It's players. Is it players only? Is that the rule back then? I really, man. I mean, it depends on who wanted to get involved. Man, I try to make it a you know, a, a, a staff-friendly day at times, too. You know what I mean? So it wasn't just only players, you know. But sometimes staff didn't want to play, right, Seth? Man, when the players were out there playing as hard as they were, Seth played with both sides, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, man, one one day might have been all players. Another day might have been a couple players and some, some guys from the staff. But the one day at Wednesday was, was a rough play. Wednesdays were rough. But, see, my secret, Travis, is if you're the first guy – they're going to get on. You know, so right. You may only get one in, but at least you're going to get on because I wasn't getting picked up otherwise. <laughs> yeah, but then you get OJ with, like, game point and the ball in his hand and he's not going to be denied. I'm just like, go ahead, man. I'm not I'm not getting in front of you for that. So, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, but OJ, I'll go at you if you're on his team and you play next week. <laughs> That's right. That's hey, right. as long as I have my all my teeth still on my face, I'm good with it. 
So we're talking about the 2005 Broncos and Dolphins game today on Flashback Friday. And, uh, you know, this was a game that I talk to you guys all the time about my golden era, my favorite era of Dolphins football. And I really love this game for a multitude of reasons. It's just it, I, the Dolphins, I think, going into that year didn't have high expectations coming off the 4-12 and 12 season, even with Nick Saban arriving. But to go out there and put it on a team that would eventually wind up in the AFC Championship game 34-10 to 10 with a blowout victory. And, you know, Seth, you were talking about it off air a little bit, the receiving core and some of the talent that team had and obviously what the defense became with Nick Saban and, and Jason Taylor and Zach Thomas and uh, Sam Madison was still there. And you told me a little bit as well that although JT and Saban had a great relationship, it didn't necessarily start off that way. It didn't. I mean, actually, you could go back to the end of 04 when Jim Bates was the interim head coach. And I remember an interview when Coach Saban had been selected. The Dolphins had agreed to terms with Coach Saban, but the Dolphins were still finishing out their season. And they asked Jason Taylor, hey, what do you think about Nick, the hiring of Nick Saban? He said, I don't give a damn about Nick Saban. Jim Bates is my head coach. You know, JT's very loyal that way. Or at least he was up to that point. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that happened. And then Saban had talked about, you know, changing uh, the way that, that Jason would fit into the defense and, and that hybrid position and uh, said that, you know, if he had played linebacker his whole career, he could be in the Hall of Fame, which I think is kind of funny. And, um, and, and so Gary Wishar, Jason's agent, said, wait a minute, this guy was pretty good with his hand in the dirt for the first however many years of his career. What's going on here? And so there was, it was contentious in the offseason. But then the two guys met and, you know, the love affair ensued and, and so did a lot of a lot of plays uh, as JT continued to do for his entire career. And JT, just like many guys who played uh, juice, right? So many of those guys came in the tank and, and just talked about how, um, how much they learned about football, even at that stage of their career, how much they learned about football playing under Nick Saban. So, uh, you know, I gotta, I gotta give credit where credit is due, but this was the first game we were going to see how, how's this marriage going to work. Yeah. The defensive guys, Travis, let's get that right here. All the <laughs> defensive guys have this love affair for Nick. You know what I mean? <laughs> Offensively, I don't think the love was the same. I don't think. (laughs) Chambers did too, right? He said he empowered him as a leader. So, you know, I have to, I I hate to do it. I hate to do it, but I have to give Nick that credit. There was a there was a great uh, sketch. It was Frank Caliendo when he was doing his weekly Fox bit every you know on Sunday the Sunday pregame show. And after the Dolphins won that game, he had one the following week where he made fun of Nick Saban and he did it through through Jim Rome. And it was I I have watched that a million times in my life. It's it's a really good one. And uh, but you talk about Jason Taylor. That was his first game with Nick Saban. This was the first game in the career of Channing Crowder who did the podcast right before you guys jumped on. And as always, he was great. I mean, you can't have a Channing Crowder episode, not have it be great, but I'm curious, OJ, is this guy, is he number one in the all time fish tank power rankings? Because we had two episodes. You couldn't shut him up. Obviously two episodes of, of just pure gold from Channing. Is he, is he top of the list there? He's really, he's ranking really high. He really is, man. We've got a couple that are coming up and one that we already had is this climbing on him, but Channing by far, you know, for one, he's, he's been in there multiple times in the tank, and that's hard to do first. And for two, we're thinking about bringing him in a third time. So that tells you how we feel about Channing and what he can do, you know, in the tank. So he, he's up there when it comes to the, in the food chain. Channing's probably the top right now, yeah. I, I told him, uh, he said at the end of the podcast, you know, you guys hit me up whenever I can do whatever podcast you want. And I said, now, Channing, I've hit you up before, and you haven't got back to me. And he was like, all right, that's fair, that's fair. you you got to stay on me. He, he mentioned the football brand like you had mentioned, OJ, so good company all around. In this game, another really memorable point of this game, I'll go back to you for this one, Seth. 
Jason Taylor ends this thing, puts, puts it on ice. And I asked a dumbass question, man. I asked Channing, did Jason regret picking that fumble up and running it back? Because I remember when he, when he fell into the end zone after the jump, man, he was completely gassed. He couldn't like, it looked like he was just, I'm, my body is spent for the day. I need to go sit in a cold tub for about 14 hours. And I asked Channing, did he regret that? But obviously he said no, because you know, he's got a record in that department. What do you recall about that scoop and score 85 yards, Seth? Yeah, I, you know, look, it's something we saw JT do his entire career. Um, just for context, you know, I worked there from 96 to the 03, or um, through 03 into the 04 offseason, missed the 04 season, thankfully. And then in 05, I was still working in the press box and at that point working for Jason and, and uh, you know, running the foundation. Um, so I was there at that game, seen so many times Jason do that. Uh, we saw it first, right, with the Achilles Smith, um, the Cincinnati game. And, you know, he loves the trifecta. But that was, you know, the game was pretty well in hand. But uh, you talk to any defensive end, and they love having a big lead in the fourth quarter. That's when those guys like to eat. Yeah. I remember JT would stand on the sidelines and get mad if our offensive linemen weren't still playing hard at the end of games that we were getting blown out in because other guys were getting sacked, you know, and so he, he was competitive that way. So they're looking for that time to just, just pin their ears back, turn the corner and go. And, uh, but it was, it was a hot game as they always are those opening games here. And, and juice knows that better than I do. Cause I sat in the damn press box in the air conditioning, but it was hot down on that field. And those guys had played almost 70 plays and, uh, but, you know, the eyes get big and, and uh, 85 yards is a long way to run for those guys. Um, but he did it. And I just remember, you know, Sam was looked like he was trying to give him CPR there in the, in the end zone, trying to bring him back. And the whole team piled on him. And Juice, again, you would know this better than I, but as much as they're celebrating you, doesn't it become harder to breathe when you've got another 10 guys laying on top of you? That's, that's the worst position ever. That's the worst position ever on the bottom. The last guy is the best position. The guy that piles on at the end. You know, he's got the best position. Doesn't look as good, but yeah, the bottom of any pile, you know, with a bunch of grown ass men, that's not good ever. Especially on the infield dirt. On the infield dirt, everyone's sweating. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the other thing, Travis, though, is uh, the PR guy in me knew that JT at that point had four fumble return, career fumble returns for touchdowns. And the NFL record at that time was, uh, or was it, was this, no, he had five and was this the sixth? But he tied, I believe he tied Jesse Tuggle with this one. And that's not just for defensive linemen. That was any player at any position. He went on to have another one and, and holds the NFL record now. But So those are the things that I would keep track of. Counting sacks, which quarterback did he get, what NFL records did he tie as he's starting to set. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just all the way around, it was the exclamation point at the end of that game. And uh, it was a lot of fun, particularly being my guy. Yeah, well, he, JT was our best offense back then. So, yeah, <laughs> our offense was well, garbage. Well, I was going to so. say, he wound up with one the following year in, in 2006 against the Chicago Bears, another one of my all-time favorite games. They were 1-6 they were going into that game and wound up just putting it on the Bears to much to everyone's surprise once again to knock the Bears off their undefeated perch. So that was, you know, two times in two decades they did that against the Chicago Bears. But, Seth, you mentioned another, another point about this game, and here's my kind of story for you guys. Again, Every week we do this, my senior year of high school was... I was in diapers. And I, yeah, okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> I was in my stroller. Bring, bring, it, bring it on. Let's, just, let's get it out of the way. 2005, <laughs> my senior year, and I was one of those kids that liked to sleep in until very, very late on the weekends. I think most kids probably did. But I had one of those, like, those original alarm clocks that you had to set. It was before your iPhone. And I always had to 
put an alarm on for 10 a.m. games on the West Coast for the Dolphins because I would miss it if I if I slept past the alarm clock. And my alarm didn't go off, and I woke up in a full-fledged panic because, and I'm still this way, if I miss a Dolphin snap, I, I feel incomplete. I don't like it. It bothers me. And so back then, I woke up, it was like 10.25 or something, and I was freaking out. And I turned the TV on, and Chris Chambers is falling into the end zone on that reverse and I'm, I, I'm like half asleep, like, yeah, cheering. And then they, they pan to the sideline, and that referee is saying, no, no, he stepped out of bounds. And you said you gave him some crap for that? Well, no, he should be. Choose, how does he step out of bounds on that? That should have been a touchdown. And nobody towed the sidelines better than right. Chris Chambers, right? Right. How the exactly. hell does that happen? I'm asking you that, Juice. Like, how do you know? What are you feeling? Because there's a lot you got to, you know, obviously you don't want to get hit by guys. As a, as a player who's run some back into and scored plenty of times, how, how do you feel the boundaries over there? And what the hell happened with Chris? Why didn't he know he was stepping out of bounds? Yeah, I don't know, man. It's not, it's, and you, like you said, it's not like Chris. You know, Chris is the best when it comes to sideline work, end zone, you know, back of the end zone work. You know, his it's, it's, it's footwork is flawless, man. So, yeah, it was just a little faux pas by him. You know, it doesn't usually happen to guys like that. We see some other guys get out because they're afraid of contact. But Chris is usually – uh. Some other Ohio guys do that, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> the the thing I always love about Chris, for from my personal perspective, was he filled a void in my fandom heart when Ricky retired. Because I told you guys this before, I was so heartbroken by Ricky Williams retiring, and then Chris that next season in two thousand five. I remember the stat line in the back of my head. I always remember 82 catches, 1,118 yards, and 11 touchdowns, and that was big time production. You know, for it was his biggest year of his career, big time production for Dolphins receivers at that point because we hadn't had a big year like that in a, in a while, probably since you, OJ. And um, so uh, he he really filled. Well, we that. traded Chris right after that, so we got rid of. Him yeah, right exactly. I, I did not take that very well either. I won't I won't tell you my reaction to that. It's a little <laughs> embarrassing. So <laughs> let's go a little bit further back here, and this is a tough uh, tone changer, guys. But um, last night on on Thursday, we had we said goodbye to a Dolphins legend. Jake Scott passed away. Um, you know, on, on Thursday night. And so I just wanted to kind of check in with you guys here and, and maybe get some perspective on, on what Jake Scott meant to the Dolphins organization, Seth, as a, a guy that was a longtime safety. We saw Eric Rowe rock the no-name cleats on Sunday with Jake Scott and Dick Anderson. thought that was really, really cool. And then, you know, now we have this news about Jake Scott. But just for the for the younger fans that were in diapers for the 2005 game, uh, tell us tell us about Jake Scott, Seth. Well, let me first and foremost say that I was in diapers at, at when Jake Scott was, was dominating the Dolphins' backfield, or not even born in some part of that. Uh, I was born in 73. So, um, no, I mean, it truly is a loss of a legend. And and Jake's a guy that, and look, he was a Super Bowl, Super Bowl MVP. Uh, you talk about the no-name defense, but he you know, he and Dick Anderson back there were two of the best in, in, in that entire era. Um, and not just just great dolphin players. Uh, obviously, it's fun to watch old highlights and see number thirteen do something other than throw eighty five yard touchdown passes. It's kind of wild to watch it. Um, but the more you learn about Jake, the more you read about Jake. We've had some guests, including Dave Hyde, who told some amazing Jake Jake Scott stories in the tank. Um, he just was he was a character. He was he was a unique individual. Uh, a tough uh, son of a gun and so and and clearly you can even look statistically just a phenomenal football player so it's a loss all the way around uh, you know our heart goes out to to his family but certainly I think the entire 
family that an extended family that is the Dolphins Nation. And I, I hope that people do recognize that, you know, Jake was a special, special player uh, with, with this franchise for a long time. And part of the reason why, you know, we, we pride ourselves on being the only team to go undefeated um, and untied in the history uh, of the NFL. And Jake's got a big reason why that happened. We've got plenty of content up on MiamiDolphins.com taking a look at the, the life of Jake Scott, the career of Jake Scott. We have a photo gallery. Andy Cohen wrote a great piece that's up on MiamiDolphins.com right now, so go check that out if you guys have not done so already. OJ, what's coming up next here in the fish tank? We got. I know Seth has been telling me about an episode that I can't wait to, to hear personally, but I'm not going to spoil it because I'm not sure when it's coming out yet, but what's coming up this week for you guys? <laughs> Yeah, we're not sure either. We've got a, we've got a couple things uh, brewing in the tank as we we like to bring out. But um, I know we've got a we've got a doozy coming out with uh, one of my, of course, another wide out. Because every time we bring wide outs in, I say let's break the news, Juice. Go ahead and break it right here on Drive Time. Yes. All right, yeah, we got yes. we got Devon Best coming. Ooh, out. this yeah. Tuesday, my gold era, baby. This Tuesday coming out, we got Devon Best coming on, and boy, was it! That's why I was talking about the beginning about the whole Channing situation. Devon's gonna give him a run for his money. Good. Good. He's going to give him a run for his money, man. It's one of the best uh, episodes that we've recorded. Uh, we went about an hour and 15 minutes. It was that good. He was uh, he was real. He was real and raw, man. And we we know the trials and tribulations that he's going through, and he talked about everything, man. So it was, it was absolutely amazing. Seth, you want, want to add anything to that? No, I mean, Juice just he, – he said it all. Uh, Devon, uh, look, he was a fun guy to root for, right, the underdog that shows up and the smaller guys who are tough and make all those catches. We know another one who might be sitting on the podcast with us here. But Devon – well, uh, although, you know, I guess underdog. You can't be a first-round pick underdog. But, <laughs> oh, Devon, <laughs> but Devon's entire story, and I think there's elements of it that people don't even know from the front end, and then there are things that we saw, but we're really confused and concerned as to what happened to him on the back end of his career. And Devon talks about it all, but he's he's just so inspirational. Um, he did not hide from anything. He was so honest. He was so candid and, and vulnerable, I think, a lot in, in this interview, Juice. Yep. Um, and we also talk about some fun moments during his career. Uh, you know, that, that season that he had as a rookie where he – he was, uh, I think, second all time in receptions for an undrafted uh, rookie wide receiver. Um, it was, it was, uh, it felt like he came out of nowhere. You know, for those of us, particularly on the East Coast, came out of Hawaii. He felt like he came out of nowhere and and was really just a spectacular player. Also, really wonderful in the community. I had an opportunity to work with him. Uh, some of his best route functions that that he participated in. So we were really excited that Devon was, that we were able to get in touch with Devon and that he was willing to come into the tank. And, and I think he had a lot of fun telling stories that he felt he wanted Dolphin fans to hear. That's, that's awesome to hear. I remember when he you mentioned kind of coming from nowhere. I was a big part of Dolphins message board communities back in those days. And we would cover, <laughs> we would cover you know, I use air quotes, OTAs and summer camps. And it was always dismissive, like, oh, sure, Devon Best, this little undrafted rookie is going to make an impact. And everyone would dismiss it as this guy that's having good practices every single day. Lo and behold, he winds up being a big-time producer and made some big-time catches on that division championship team in 2008. Seth Levitt, OJ McDuffie, the Fish Tank Podcast, Bob Baumhauer in the can last week, and we got hopefully Devon Best this week coming up. We'll see what they come up with on Tuesday. Guys, appreciate your time as always. Crossover Friday, another success. Thanks for having us, Travis. Thanks, Travis.
and away they go. Fun, as always, with the guys from the Fish Tank Podcast. As for this edition of the Drive Time Podcast, that's going to be my time. We'll be back with you guys on Sunday night to recap Dolphins and Broncos. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. MiamiDolphins.com, the Fish Tank, and the Audible Podcast. All the content you guys could ever want. Until next time, fins up.